You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Well, everybody, if I don't know you, my name is Riz. I'm the pastor here at Reality Honolulu and uh, just so blessed. Favorite time of the week to gather and to worship with you and to get into God's word and We've been going through the book of Philippians, so why don't you open with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Yes, only two verses. If you've been here, we like to go slow, we're going really slow today, um, but we are doing two verses. I could have done one, so I'm, going, I'm faster than one verse, so. Uh, we're going to read together out of the NIV. If you don't have NIV, I have it on the PowerPoint, or as always, there is uh, Bibles on the tables in the back but we're going to go ahead and read God's word this morning and pray over it and then get right into it. So Philippians 2, 12 through 13, it says this, Paul speaking, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for every single one of us that you've brought to this place. And we believe, God, that you want to speak to us through your word today. We believe that your word is living and it's active and that it's profitable for teaching and correcting and, and training in righteousness so that the, the man or woman of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. And so God, would you have your way? Would you speak through me? Let me be your mouthpiece to communicate the truths of your word to us. God, we just ask that your will would be done. You would anoint this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. What we like to do is just be reminded of what we're jumping into, right? If you've been with us, you, re you remember that this is a letter by Paul written in a Roman prison. This is one of four letters that he's written from prison that we have alongside Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. Uh, Philippians is one of those letters that he writes to churches, specifically this one that he helped start some 10 years earlier. And this church, the church in Philippi, which was the first church plant in Europe, you know, Paul being this missionary, this, this church planting pioneer was led by God to plant this church in Philippi. And this church uh, is really special to him. It's fond to him. And, this, and the people there, even in, our, in verse 12 this morning, he refers to this church as his dear friends. It's really personal for Paul. These are brothers and sisters in Christ of equal value as any other Christian, but there's unique affection and unique fondness in a, in a, a close and kindred relationship that Paul has with them. He, he really thinks of them as his kids. And he's in prison, and he's, on, and he's in prison because he's been preaching the gospel. He's been going from city to city, and he's been bold and courageous, anointed by God, he hasn't always been that way. He's always been kind of crazy, but he once was a persecutor of the church. And in Acts chapter 9, we see this dramatic conversion story where God meets Paul and Paul gets saved and he's been going ever since and he's been radically being used by God in 
He's been arrested, he's imprisoned, and he's writing not knowing how much longer he'll have to live. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of prison. He doesn't know his fate. Most likely he'll die. He ends up dying not much longer after this letter is written. But what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to communicate and pass on what he feels is most important that this group of believers gets. There's so much that Paul could have written. He's written like 13 of of the letters that we have in the New Testament. Two-thirds of the New Testament is written by Paul. He had a lot to say, and all of it's been good and right and anointed and powerful. But he's boiling it down, and he's trying to pass on and communicate to them what he feels like is most important. This is like his final letter, and he's coming out of a very personal place. Everything that Paul is speaking of, it's because God has already done it in him and he's trying to communicate it to them and he's trying to get their attention by doing this. And in our section today, Paul connects what immediately preceded last week. That's why he says, therefore, right? Verse 12 this morning, he says, therefore. Therefore connects what immediately preceded last week. And we talked and we looked about, uh, excuse me, we, we studied this idea that we as Christians are supposed to have the same mindset or the same attitude as Christ Jesus did, specifically in the area of obedience and humility, how Jesus Christ humbled himself to a man and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul's encouragement in his charge last week was that we in the same way would model Christ's life and death and that we might obey God in the same way. And Paul continues that section now. Because of that, in light of who God is and what we're to do, he says this. And his charge for them today in verses 12 through 13, at least it starts this way, is he talks about this idea of obedience. He's saying, in the same ways that you've always obeyed, talking about obedience to God. He says, not only in my presence, but how much, and and now much more in my, my absence, continue it. His charge for them is to be obedient to Jesus and his will. And he makes a real clear point that they've done that. He's exhorting them and saying, "You've, you've done a good job. You've done a good job. As far as it depends upon you, you've been obedient to Jesus. You've suffered hardship because of that, but you followed him. And he's he's alluding to the point where you've done really well when I've been with you. But his point here is, I'm not with you now, right? He's writing a, a letter in Rome, Philippi, modern day Greece. So he's writing this letter. They receive this letter. He's not with them, nor will he ever see them again. They don't know that. He doesn't know that for sure, but he doesn't. And he's saying, you've done well to like be obedient to Jesus around me. Now you're on your own and you need to be obedient to Jesus without me. This is like letting letting the kids loose. Kid turns 18, goes to college, like I've done what I can do. I'm not going to be there for you anymore. You got to do it on your own. It has to be yours. You have to make it your own, what Paul is saying. And what he's trying to get to is, the reason why they're being obedient to Jesus, he's trying to say, don't do this for me. 
Paul is like Paul, right? So they, they rightfully respected him, looked up to him. He was like a mentor to them. He was the, the guy that planted their church. Paul's Paul. And what he's saying is don't obey Jesus because of me. Because when I'm not around, you'll fail to obey Jesus anymore because you're, you're trying to make me proud or trying to do it for me. And what he's trying to say is you need to be obedient to Jesus for Jesus' sake and not be swayed by me or anyone around you. And man, just as like a little side takeaway, this is such a good lesson for us to learn. Because in the same way, we need to ask ourselves, in our faith, why are we doing what we're doing? For those of you that grew up in the church, there needed to be, there had to be a point where you made your faith your own. That's the typical story of the kid that grows up in church. I didn't grow up in church, so I don't really know that. But for those of you guys that grew up in church, that's kind of the pivotal point where you make your faith your own. But also, you may have been coming here today, you may have been brought to church, you may even go to church because you feel like, well, it'll please someone else or someone else wants me to. Or you may even be here and your spouse is wanting you to, but you don't really want to and you come because you just want to make them happy. It is so good that we step back and we ask ourselves, why are we here? Like, why are we doing this? Is it for God and for us and for our own personal relationship, or is it merely to please and make people think well of us? We need to get to the place of the previous where it's, we, we do it for Jesus because us and Jesus, we have a personal relationship for our own. That's the place where we want to get to. And the reason why Paul is, is hammering this to this church and to us today is that Paul was well aware of humanity's frailty and our proneness to wander. He wasn't himself. He would call himself the chief of sinners. He, he knows very well. He exposes our frailty and our proneness to wander. And he knew the reality that, that if he wasn't around and if their faith wasn't their own, they were going to easily become swayed by the people around them. And what he's trying to expose and what should be exposed in ourselves is we have to be God-pleasers and not man-pleasers. We have to be. This, this truth is for us and applicable for us that our motivation for our faith should never be founded upon another person or another person's approval or another person's to, to please them or to do things for them. This idea of being God pleasers and not people pleasers is throughout scripture, whether it's Colossians 3.23, Acts 5.29. There is a real grounding to our faith. There's an, an obedience if there's, if, something that will, if there's something that will disrupt your obedience to God more, it's pleasing people. In other words, people pleasing will be the quickest way to disobedience. Trust me, by nature, how I'm wired, my personality, I do not like to let people down. I'm a people pleaser. I struggle with it all the time. God is helping me with that. But... If I look back into the bad decisions I've made, into the times where I should have done something I didn't, it was because of other people. 
for the sake of what they thought of me, and I didn't want to make it upset. I hate saying no. Anybody relate? People pleasers, probably a room of them. That doesn't mean that we don't love people. It doesn't mean that we're not nice to people. But what matters is that we're obedient to Jesus more than pleasing people. God's will, his plans, his purposes far outweigh pleasing that person. Would you agree? Yes. This is where Paul starts off. He says, you've obeyed but I want you to continue to obey. I don't want you to be swayed by people or even myself. I don't want me being around to make you a better or worse Christian. I want you to obey God and his will on your own. And he continues in verse 12 by saying, I want you to do this and continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so if you first read this, if you've heard the gospel preached and taught correctly, or if you've read your Bible correctly ever, this might sound super contradictory or a problem. What do you mean work out my salvation? Didn't God do that? Because at the core of what our faith is and what we believe, if you actually are reading the Bible correctly, if you're interpreting scripture correctly, we believe that we didn't earn our own salvation. God did it for us upon the cross, right? It's by grace that we've been saved and by grace alone. What's foundational to what we believe, why we're saved, why we have our salvation is wrapped up in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? By grace, we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no may boast. That, that's, that's the gospel. It's by grace that we've been saved. Not that we've worked for our own salvation, but God did the work. Right? Titus 3, 3 through 5 says the same thing in a different way. For we all... For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that we in ourselves didn't have to just try harder and get better and pull our boots up and like, we're saved. We're good enough in God's eyes. The good news of the gospel is that God did the work and we just receive it, amen? So what is Paul saying? What is Paul meaning by this? Simply, it's this. We're told to work out to put into practice in our daily living what God has worked in us by his Holy Spirit. Let me say it a different way. What Paul is saying here is that we're not told to work for our salvation, but to work out our salvation God has already given us. Do you see the difference? It's not work for, it's work out. What Paul did mean is he's calling the Philippians to put real put forth real effort into their Christian lives. Like God did the work, but you need to work out, live out what God has given you. Like live out Christ's likeness in your life. 
Again, this is not work for salvation in the sense of accomplishing it, but it's working out our salvation to see evidence in areas of our lives. Or in other words, like to activate our salvation God has freely given us. So this is Paul's charge to the Philippians. This is God's word for us. You've been saved by grace, but now it's time to live out that gift. In other words, last week was have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, grow in the likeness of Christ. As image bearers, as Christians, now we're to be active participants in changing to be like Christ. This is what Paul's saying. And he's saying, do it with fear and trembling. Right, this outworking of our faith is to be done with fear and trembling. What that doesn't mean is out of a place of fear of punishment or fear of condemnation or the fear that, you know, we're forced into it or, oh my gosh, if I don't do it, then God's going to punish me. This idea here that Paul says, it's the idea to be reverent, to take our relationship with God serious. It's, it's Paul's way of turning up the heat and getting their attention to say, your walk with Jesus doesn't just come to you. It's not supposed to be something that's haphazard and like, you know what, over time, I'll just grow like Jesus and I'll just become less like me and more like him. What he's saying is, no, you, you gotta work at it. You gotta be mindful of it. You gotta pay attention to it. You gotta want it. And so Paul is, is trying to communicate that even though God did the work, we're saved. Before God's eyes, we're justified. There's a practical means by which we work out our salvation, and it's supposed to be done with, with fear and trembling. It's supposed to be done in, in utter reverence of who God is and who we are. And I don't know about you, but um, time is so uh, limited, right? And if you're going to say, you know what? I'm just going to read my Bible and pray and like, spend time with God when I have time. What happens? You don't have any time. It never comes. Your schedule gets filled up. If you don't make time, if you don't make time, be disciplined to say no to other things. Wake up earlier. Read your Bible on your lunch break. You'll never read your Bible. You just won't. It's the same thing like with a spouse or a significant other. Oh, you know what? Well, I'll just like spend time with them when we have time. Well, if you're like anyone else, you never have time. So unless you get a date night, unless you purpose in yourself to talk to the person after the kids are to bed, unless you like try, it's not going to happen. Similar with the Lord, working out, taking notice of, being mindful and active participants in our growth. Make sense? This is, the, this is, this is what we're seeing today in our text. Then Paul says in verse 13, he says, God is at work in you. Yes, you're a part of it, but I want to remind you that God is the one doing the internal big heart work. You help foster it. You, you're participating in it, but God is the one that's actually doing the work. Guys, this should be such good news. It should be good news because it should be encouraging us that God is ultimately in control. He's in charge of changing us and changing others. We do participate in fostering good soil for growth, but God is the one ultimately at work. 
what this should do is it should help us to cease striving and know that he is God. That, that prayer actually changes things. So many times I think we have this low view of prayer, of asking God because we feel like we need to be the ones like picking up the shovel and getting to work. We need to be the ones changing. But prayer is, is actively asking God to do the work. And God is absolutely capable to do the work. See, God desires to work in us, it says here, that because he has good purposes for us. Did you, did you catch that? Paul says here in verse 13, it's God that's working in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So God's desire is to work in us, but the reason why he wants to work in us is because he has good intentions to he has good purposes for us. I think a lot of times we question this. We question God's motives. This is what I mean. When things are good, we don't. But when we enter into trials, enter times of hardships, we look at our hardships, we look at our current situation, and we read the Bible, we hear about God's character and how big he is and how good he is and how he can do anything. And when we're in our current situation, we can, that, we can maybe question God's reasons. Like, wait, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Or maybe it's you've been praying that God would do something in your life or take something away or heal somebody, and God has not. So in our minds, God has not answered our prayers. What this can do is that we question God's intent and his motives. Like, God, how could you do that? Or for many of us, we might just look at the news these days and see everything wrong that's going on and question, God, how could you allow all this evil in the world? How could you do this? If you're a good God and a good father, how could you do this? Right, and the, and the list goes on. So many times we question God's good purposes, his good motives. And what happens is, is the more we do this, or the more personal it gets, what happens is that can actually erode our trust, and it can erode our belief that God has good in mind when it comes to us and to people. And this inner working being for a good reason is kind of like a joke. And I know, I can guess, I don't know, but I'm guessing that there's a handful of us in there that, that we resonate with that. Because we've experienced something really close to us where we feel like in some way or another, God did not have my good intentions. God not, did not have the best for me or the best for my family when this happened. What I want to say is that God does, even when we don't understand it, God has the best intentions for us. Another verse to go alongside this is continuing on in Ephesians, verses 2:10. What we just read was, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man should boast. It goes on to say that we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 
In Philippians, it says that God has good purposes for us. In Ephesians, it says that God has good plans prepared beforehand. And this is true, that God has amazing things in store for each of us. Whether we struggle to accept that or believe that or not, that is truth. That God has our best intentions in mind. And he actually has like things in the future, like things going forward that are good. See, God sees so much more than we ever will. So when God says no, when God says yes, when he allows things to happen, when he allows things to happen that we completely disagree with, you have to know that God sees way more than us. God is actually outside of time. If you see a timeline of your life, actually the entire world, God's outside of it. He knows every single person. He knows every situation. He knows what's best for us. So when God is saying yes, when God is saying no, when he allows certain things to happen, there actually is a good reason behind every one of them. I didn't fully grasp this until I became a father. And then you understand, like, some of the things that you're trying to do with your kids. Obviously, I'm a father now of two kids, and especially with my daughter. She's like five and a half now. And I totally am grasping the father heart of God that much more being a father myself. My daughter, above all, loves treats. Above toys, above experiences, like she is a sugar tooth. I mean, just like, and she'll play it like real good. Like, oh yeah, like and she's smart and she's witty and she's manipulative and she's crafty and she'll try to trick you at all things. Um, and man, a lot of times, because she wants so many treats, my answer is no. But in her mind, it's like, why? Right? And then she, at five and a half, oh, yeah, like if you got kids, like she's got all the responses, she's got the rebuttals, she's got the cases against you, why that's not. Like, you don't know the last time mom said this, and you're like, oh my gosh. She's gonna be trouble real soon. She's already trouble. My answer for her is no, not only for the present, because, like, that's too much sugar for you now before bed. Or, like, I know what that's going to do to your teeth. But it's also for the future, like, so that we don't give her all the time and she expects it. And then all of us, you know, like, the my no is because I'm seeing a lot bigger picture than she is. But she's like, how dare you say no to my lollipop at 10 o'clock at night. So she's, like, frustrated, right? She gets frustrated. It's not 10 a lollipop, but you know what I mean. It's close to that. Yesterday, even, like, we're at the beach. She's getting in the car. This is moving on. There's other parts. This is not treats anymore. But she's, like, hanging out of the car when we're trying to get dressed. And, and I'm saying, hey, Eva, can you please stop doing that? And she says, Dad, why do you always say stop when I do dangerous things? <laughs> and you kind of, like, have to, like, look away and laugh. You know how you do that? You're like, I can't, I can't laugh at you, but. And you're like. That, that's actually why, because it's dangerous. That's why I'm saying stop. But, but do you get where I'm getting at? That's the same that is true with us and God. So often we see like the minute, temporal, like God, why? Why are you letting that happen? And God's like, are you kidding me? And in the same way, we probably say to God, like, God, why do you stop me all the time when I'm doing dangerous things? We don't say that, but that's what God hears. Like, no, no. Me not letting you do that is because of this. 
And we don't see it. We don't see it. But God built us. He knows us best. And he knows what growth needs to happen in us. And he knows what good works are in front of us. And he wants us to step into them. And again, it comes down to what you believe about the character of God. If you believe that God is a good God, that he's perfect, that he doesn't have bad things for you. And I understand that the relationship with you have with your earthly father is probably affecting the perception you have with your heavenly father, or at least it can. If you got a good one, you think of God differently. If you had a really bad experience with a father figure, then you may have a really bad experience with God, or have, have trouble with it at least. But what we need to do is it starts to believe that God has good intentions and to believe that God has good things for us has to start with us believing that God is a good father and wants the best for us as his kids. We have to get there first. And we believe that our good father looks at us kids and he says, I have amazing things for you that, that I prepared. They're already there, but I just want you to walk in them. But see how there's a participation there. They're there, but I want you to be obedient to me and say no to sin and yes to me and so you can walk into these wonderful things. God's done it, but we walk. Do you see how we're actually working out our salvation there? God did it all, but we are actively participating in it. But the question is, is okay, well, wh what is God's good for our life? If we believe he's a good father, if we believe that his intentions are good, what is God's good? What does that mean? Well, if you remember how the whole thing started, Genesis chapter 1, when God spoke the world into existence, day one of this world, the heavens and the earth, the universe that God spoke into existence, after every single thing God made, what did he say? It's good. Right, the moon and the stars, he made the day and the night, and God said it was good. He made all the animals, the fish of the sea, and, and, you know, the land animals, and he would step back every single time, and he would look at all of his creation and say, this is good. When he created Adam and Eve, he would step back and say, it is good. The end of the first chapter of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1.31, it says that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was perfect. It was exactly how God intended it and how exactly God wants it to be, and it's never changed. His heart for all of creation and all of humanity has always been that. But sin, the sin that entered the next chapter into that same garden, has systematically to this day and continues to taint, distort, and mar all of that goodness. Sin has affected and messed up everything. The image that we were made into, God's image, all of us, were made into the image of God. Sin has tweaked that and distorted it and marred it. The cross was the power to break that. Right When Jesus died on the cross, it broke that power, that curse, Sin's, sin's power over humanity was broken. That's why it's good news. But then the spirit in us is actually redeeming us and bringing us back to that same goodness. 
That's the goal. That's what we're talking about here, is that God's work in us, his good intentions in us, is actually trying to redeem us back to that good, God-intended, God-designed place. God is trying to redeem us as a people back to the garden again. And sin, what it's done in us, is it's really badly messed us up as a people And instead of worshiping God, we like to worship ourselves. Instead of glorifying God, we like to glorify ourselves. Instead of pleasing God, we want to please ourselves. And this is by definition what sin is it's sinful, independent nature. And when God is at work in us, remember our good Father that has good intentions, when He works in us, Oftentimes, it's confronting a habit, an attitude, or a norm that we have rooted in selfishness. So there's a conflict that happens. Like the Holy Spirit is working to conform us to the image of God, but the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh are exactly opposite. They actually are in contradiction to one another. What our flesh wants and what God wants are not the same thing. Galatians chapter 5 spells this out. Galatians 5, 16 through 24 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For they are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and these uh, things like these for which I forewarn you. Oh, excuse me, for which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the fruit of the flesh. That's a selfish, independent nature in contradiction to God, and all of those things are not how God intended the world to be. That is, every one of those is outside of God's design. Now read this, verse 22. This is how God wanted it and wants it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is how God designed it to be. This is how God wants it. And this is what God is trying to get us back to. Even though you feel like, whoa, 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 I'm not wired like that, I'm not. That's actually how God made you. And you're actually going to fit best with those things. Every one of those other fruits of the flesh is destroying you. When we operate in sin, we continue to mar the image of God. We continue to, to, to... separate ourselves from God. We, get, we, we continue to go against God's design. So this is where it gets real. I'm going to include myself in this. What are we doing 
that goes against God's intent? What are we continuing to do to mar this? What is adding to going against God's design? Or in other words, what is the sin that we are still engaging in that is feeding the flesh and withholding the Spirit's work? Paul says here that God is at work in you. And it's for his good intention. And he wants to redeem you. And he wants to restore you. And he wants to make you whole again. But he says, I need you to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. With real sincerity of heart. With all seriousness. What is holding you back from God working? There's things in which we engage in whether it's sexual immorality or pornography or envy or strife or jealousy or drunkenness. There's things in which we're doing, we're continuing to do that is not bringing us back to the place where God wants us, but it's actually pushing us farther away. And our heavenly father, just like a good father or a good parent that sees their kid going astray, He'll do anything in his power to bring them back. And our God did that by sending his son to redeem us and set us free. And God is always willing and always wanting and his door is always open. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what immediately happened is they were ashamed of their sin and they noticed for the first time that they were naked without clothing and they actually hid themselves from God. And God, in the cool of the garden, said, where are you? What are you doing? And what happened was, is that when they sinned and when they rebelled, it brought shame to them and they no longer wanted to be near to the Lord because they already felt separation. And for many of us in this room, we might feel shame over what we're doing or what we've done and we feel like we can't approach God or we don't know how to or we're just so burdened by our sin and the consequences of our sin and I want to remind you of God's grace this morning. The great same grace that saves us is the same grace that's extended to us when we fall. The Bible would say our loving, God's loving kindness is the thing that leads us into repentance. Repentance is a giving up and a turning away from that sin and saying, God, I'm done with it. I no longer want to live outside of your design. I want what's best for me, and you know what's best, so God, here it is. And it's turning to God. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God, wanting what God always wanted for us. What I want to do this morning is I want to charge us with remembering that Jesus died to do the work. But we need to allow him to do the work and we need to help him to do the work by giving it up and saying, God, I want you. I don't want that anymore. I want to choose you. Forgive me. Free me from walking waywardly. I want to know you. And don't get me wrong. Remember who God is. He is not the judgmental, legalistic father that you can't come to. He is a warm, welcoming, loving, unconditionally father that will do anything for you. So as we go into a time of worship, I want to encourage you to remember how God made you, to know that he has his best intentions in mind, 
and to come to him with whatever you have and say, God, I want more of you. Let me speak this benediction over us and then we'll pray. Hebrews 13, 12, uh, 20 through 21 says, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will and may, be, and may work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God, we thank you that you are a good father that desires only the best for your kids. And as your kids, Lord, we want to receive that. We want to receive all that you have for us. So God, maybe some of us in here, we need you to help us to have a right view of you as a father. For other of us, others of us in here, we just need a we need more faith, God, help our unbelief to believe that you're good and that you do have the best intentions for us, even though we're in the midst of a hardship. But God, we want to become more like you. We want you to continue to redeem us back into our original intent in the garden. So God, would you help us? We can't do this on our own. We need you, Holy Spirit, to do the work in us. But God, would you help us to foster it? Would you help us to foster the growth in our life? Show us what that may mean to rearrange our life in a way that, that promotes growing like Jesus. God, would you do that? We lift your name up. We worship you. We praise you now for who you are and what you've done. And we ask, God, that you'd be exalted in these songs of worship, that you would get all the praise and all the credit and all the glory because you're the one worthy of it.